on the next episode of STTNGs. Get ready to see the most shocking thing ever. A revolving door in space. Look out, Riker! There's a spinning door! Data plays craps like your granny in Vegas. I'm sorry, it looks like Casino Night on the Golden Girls to me. Sea Wharf make first contact with room service. In this long convoluted story is just that there is an ounce <laughs> of character development for Wharf. This dude learns things, man. Bellboy, take my bags to the hotel STTNGs, not another Star Trek podcast. Coming at you right about now. You'll do the heavy lifting, Dave. Uh, hey, welcome everybody to STTNGs. Not another Star Trek podcast. Oh my God, another one? Are you serious? I'm your co-host, Commander Dave E. Dave. I, I'm Ambassador Andrew. Yes, <laughs> you're very serious tonight. No, I'm not serious at all. This is a ridiculous episode. I can't wait to talk about this. So we're doing a Star Trek: The Next Generation rewatch podcast, and we are deep, deep, deep into season two, episode twelve. We, we may actually be past the halfway point, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I, I like this episode more than you do, I think, and we're going to find that out as we as we make our way through it. What in the world happens in this episode? Well, that's a good question, Dave. I'd argue not much. The Enterprise, it's on its way to, to somewhere, who knows where. They get a message from a Klingon vessel about some space shrapnel, and on closer investigation, they find out that the shrap is from a NASA capsule, Dave. National Aeronautical Space Association. And, and holy 20th century, Captain. Oh, my God. How did this Earth debris get all the way onto this side of the galaxy? Wrong side of the galaxy. Captain Johnny Picard sends an away team of some of our most essential cast members down to investigate a mysterious structure on the planet below. Riker, Data, and Worf materialize onto a bubble pocket of oxygen-rich existence that is somehow thriving on this otherwise deadly gaseous planet. <laughs> Sounds like me after Taco Bell. It's Taco Tuesday, number one. Once, <laughs> once there, I felt like <laughs> oxygen-rich planet. Oxygen. Rich planet. Once there, our team finds an antique door. It's revolving, and it leads Reichs and company into a 1980s casino, uh, the Royale, which they can't escape. The away team soon discovers they are trapped in a construct built from the template of a bad novel. Right. With help from Johnny up top and a Howard Hughes-esque mummy below, our crew devises a, a plot to gamble their way out of the artificial world of the Royale. Will Riker outthink the literary cage they're trapped in? Will Deanna use her on-again, off-again empathic powers to read her Mzadi's mood? Hey, do you think Data can count enough cards to beat the house? Find out in this exciting episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. You really synopsized that like a pro. Listen here, hon. Hun, can you bring me a drink now? I'm potched. Can you bring me a complimentary beverage? Cocktails! 
cocktails, candies, cigarettes. I don't remember watching this episode back in 1989 or 90. What are we in, 89 or 90? Yeah, same thing. It all blurs together. At this point, does not matter? <laughs> it matters because- Is this a historical record? That's the thing. Some of this nonsense that we come up against, it has to do with the fact that the show is back in the 80s and- It's 1989. All right. It's star date 4262 5.4 is what it is. Oh, my God. You didn't remember this episode. Oh, no, I remembered it. I, I remember turning it off. I remember being so <laughs> damn bored by this episode that I turned it off and walked away from it. And I will admit that continues to color my perception of the episode. To me, it's just a snooze fest. Well, go ahead. Convince me I'm wrong. Or what I really enjoyed is that this episode did some of the things that I have been asking for this show to do all season. Like, please go on an adventure. Everything has been shipbound. And even when the drama goes to a space station or a, you know, a planet, we get very little of it. And here, finally, we get an away team mission with some actual um, lukewarm danger. But we also get very little of it. I mean, we get a revolving door. And let's let's face it, it, this was not like some sort of attempt at surrealism. They just put a goddamn revolving door <laughs> and it, an overlay of the northern lights, and they've got the door, you know, spinning around. And the rest of the thing is just black. Yeah. It's, and you could tell they're on a stage, and you could tell there's just a black door there. I know. They don't even have a styrofoam fucking rock there. Dave. I, I know. When I saw it, I thought, wow, there's zero going on. There's not even a pretend background like you know wesley standing in an asteroid belt or something they transport down into this little oxygenated area where they've seen some kind of a building from above right Riker, data and wharf but uh, up top we've got wesley and geordie on the bridge working with the captain and don't forget troy troy's troy there. Is sitting in that in that advisory seat that she now sits in they're up top most of it's happening down below they get into this place we see a shot of the sky and kind of what you're describing as Northern Lights, and then we see nothing. And and I was reading afterwards that the writer was really disappointed with this episode, and the, it was underfunded. It's getting towards the end of the year, and there wasn't any budget to build what they needed to do or to get a matte painting of a hotel or anything in there. So they just shot it in a completely black space with just the door, and I think they were hoping they would get away with it you know, working that way, but it just, it doesn't, it really doesn't. And the set decoration is pretty uninspired when they go inside. And when you see it in, you know, our era, it's so nostalgic looking for the eighties that I think it kind of carries a little more weight than it probably did at the time. It just looks like the love boat or something. I, I, I also, I do think it's true. It, it suffers from, from a conversion to high def that standard def. When I was originally watching it on my, my little, you know, 17 inch black and white in my bedroom or whatever the hell I was watching it on. The effect was probably a little more, you know, stunning, but now it's just, it, it, it just looks really chintzy. And again, this is from a guy who watches Dr. Who, right? Classic Dr. Who mind, <laughs> you know, I'm like, wow, that's, that's really interesting. And you know, they got nothing but extra map paintings lying around they and, and those uh, red gel lights. They could just shoot up on a curtain. Maybe it was a tough week. They're just like, you know what? Screw it. Just paint the place black and let's keep moving. <laughs> well, the black itself was an effect. They were in a black room, but, you know, it's the way they shoot the holodeck and all that. So once they get out of the black, they do enter an actual set. And that set, it looks like they're in a casino. And most of what happens takes place in this one large, you know, soundstage. It, 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 
I'm sorry. It looks like Casino Night on the Golden Girls. To I know. Me. Golden Girls, that's I a mean, good one. I was thinking Lubba, but yeah, it does look more like Golden Girls. Listeners, I don't know how many of you spend time in casinos, you know, drinking your, your pain away. But if you ever get an opportunity to go in one, you know, don't. They're awful. But if you do, they're chintzy looking. They're, they tend to be crowded. There's no light. Right. It's always very dim. So you have no sense of time passing. It's making all kinds of noises constantly. It's designed to be very disorientating to keep you there as long as possible. I get it. While it's wholesome television, they don't want to show these old ladies at the slot machine smoking and and drinking seven and sevens. But let me be honest with you. They're smoking and drinking seven and sevens. (laughs) They're, They're not just playing like genteely like, oh, I'm going to put my quarter in. I think they had a chance here to do something really cool and really kind of seedy and dismal right. and fun and instead they're just like golden girls casino night i i don't know if it was production limitations if it was design you know not being inspired or if it was trying to emulate what the template for this place really was we we find that they're trapped in a construct based on a bad novel like a throwaway summer reader, it's said a few times that it's a bad book. And so you could you could say that maybe the Golden Girls world that the author created in the book is being translated onto Star Trek television. But I think we also know this show a little bit better than that. We've been caught in their narratives before. We've seen, you know, uninspired episodes play out. You know, I, I said to myself, well, it does make it a little more surreal. And there's a bunch of these characters who I called NPCs, non-player characters. You ever play any video games, especially games right. like maybe Fallout? You always have these sort of fake digital people who are wandering around. They don't really have personalities. They're just there either to be shot or scream and run away from you. The people who are filling the background of this casino are just that. I mean, they have no personalities. They have no identities. Right. They're just playing their games or acting silly. So that kind of made it surreal. I think if they would have spent a little more time on the outside and done some funkier stuff with that. Right. So it didn't look so much like the away team beamed down to the back of Soundstage 7 or something. If they would have made just that look a little weirder or a little more realistic, then you could play with the surreal stuff in the casino. I, but I just, you know, I can't get over the fact that they didn't have like an Indian casino nearby. Even they could even go to like the Barona. <laughs> you know, there wasn't a card room somewhere down to El Segundo they could have hit up. Well, that's the thing about this old show and, and how they shoot shows now. And if you compare this show to the Picard series, which shoots a modern show, you've got exterior sets and real space. And then you've got interior you know, excellent set and and many, many places to be. And these old shows, I mean, they had to throw this thing together from week to week. And so this one's under budgeted and they've got something that's uninspired. But I think you're making some good points about the darkness of it and what the French called mise-en-scene, right? How do you say it in French? Mon Dieu! <laughs> Jean-Luc Picard de Plus. Mise-en-scene! Mise-en-scene! I can't do his French accent. Mise-en-scene. 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 Try to end it with some contempt. Mise-en-scene. What really great TV does, and we saw this back in A Matter of Honor. Matter of Honor. Matter of Honor. We saw a lot of light design and scene shaping through set design and shadows. And, And the thing that you can do despite everything that was going on here, budget-wise and set limitation-wise and just schedule-wise, 
you really can do a lot with light and lack of light. It does speak to the flavor of this episode. And I don't think they knew exactly where they were going with this one, even though the script is so straightforward. They play it like it's a comedy sometimes, and then they play it like it's a little creepy and scary. And it's hard to play that creepy scary when you're in this really overlit height of the 1980s. It looks like a sitcom TV. I'm glad you mentioned A Matter of Honor, too, because that was the other thing I was thinking about. Like, they, they could have put this casino on the back of the park because at least it would have been dark and smoky, right. right? You would have had a couple of giant shock absorbers in the middle of it, like they do on the bridge of the park, the Klingon ship, right. in A Matter of Honor. But for the love of God, they just showed us a ship that was unnecessarily dark, and and smoky and now there's an area that should be dark and smoky and they got it like lit up like the bridge i know i'm sorry i mean you know people who worked on this show i know you're listening because you know how can you not be and i'm sorry i i <laughs> obviously you had a, a very hard time putting this show together and just for a couple of guys like us to kvetch about it as we're entering into our manopause <laughs> no you know this is just what happens now we're we're having hot flashes and talking about star trek when I was a teenager, I was in middle school, my mom said, Davey, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, Mom, I, I want to get to my 50s and start doing some kind of a radio show about a TV show that I would have really loved to have written for. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Is that what it is? Is this is this just like sour grapes? He was like, if, only, if we had written it, now if we had written it, boy, oh, let me tell you. If they had only bought one of my teenage scripts, I could have <laughs> steered this show around. Think about this. Mirror, mirror. Wesley is captain. What do you guys think, huh? Wow. Uh, great bird. Great bird. Th that uh, Davy Goldstone is sent in another script. Uh, yeah, let me take a look at it. What he happened? He says, please, 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 please take a look. Yeah, so what happens in the script? I'm asking. Gene, Gene, Gene. Uh, look, hold on, hold on a second. Let, yeah? let me look. Right here it says, um, uh, Wesley gets trapped in a mirror universe and... Um, Somehow he has a, now he has a goatee, he carries a, a, a small dagger in his sash, and, um, and, he, and he's, wait, wait, he's wait, captain. Wait, wait, wait. A, a goatee? That kid's not going to grow a full mustache till he's 50. Yeah, this is completely unrealistic. I'll buy the mirror universe, I'll buy the dagger in the sash, goatee, no sale. <laughs> caw, caw. Uh, of course, Will Wheaton has like a full beard now. That kid's going to be as smooth as an Aldebaran dolphin until <laughs> he's in his 60s. I, uh, cool, cool. Bird, I think you mean a, a, a shaved Aldebaran dolphin. Why the hell would you shave a dolphin for fuck? Wait, what kind of horrible human being are you? Everybody knows Aldebaran dolphins are covered with hair. It's ridiculous. You're hairier than an Aldebaran dolphin. <laughs> God, not this again. <laughs> so it's another dolphin episode. Listen, listen, kids, kids. <laughs> The dolphins are back. We save the dolphins. Uh, I, I also will also say that one of the other things that bothers me about this this whole casino thing is that even the characters who are not NPCs are are just flat as hell. I know. And you got this guy playing the assistant manager, guy Sam Anderson, who has been in everything. Yes, he's he a, was an angel, lost, growing yeah. pains, you name it. And he's been in it, and he's really good at doing smarmy. Yes, he is. He's really good at doing smug. You could have done so much I, with this. I guy. know. I've seen him play really creepy characters, and he tries to put on the creep a little bit in this. And what I love about this episode is the fact that we're trapped in a place. Okay, and that's what I've been like. Please, 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 trap somebody somewhere and let them escape. But then the escape is so muted. There's no element of danger. 
keeping them there, except that they can't leave. And that's why I was suggesting that maybe it's a, right, it's a right. comedy, you know, because we see a lot of comedic things play out in the casino, but we don't get this idea that there's a mobster in this that kills one of the characters, the bellboy. He's the, he's the uh, charmingly named bellboy. Bellboy who sleeps with Rita. I say bellboy. Yes. A non-existent character. Who, uh, Rita doesn't even exist in this episode, but she's talked about quite a bit. And in the end, this mobster comes in and kills Bellboy. And it's all over Rita. Why I bring up the mobster is because there could have been like a mob threat or something keeping them in this building. They could have thought that they were trapped in the building because every time they tried to leave, there was a guard at the door or something, you know. Instead, the, the guard is protecting the door, but also keeping everybody inside of the fiction you can't really leave because when you leave you're gonna be back in that black void at least it would have offered some opportunity at least for Worf to do something because he doesn't do anything in this episode you know maybe uh, uh, some tussling or something I want to wrestle something I also want to point out though yes that the boyfriend who does the shooting is named Mickey D and honestly I couldn't stop laughing at that because I just kept thinking about Mickey D's McDonald's I know and, and and I'm just like, you know, what the f- <laughs> did they consciously call him McDonald's? Uh, great bird, great bird. Uh, hold on, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, wait, hold on. Great bird, please come down. Who is it? Just one more thing, I promise, and that that's it, great bird. I'm having a soak. We just worked out this merchandising deal with Burger King, <laughs> and we want to know if you can somehow make a, a, a disparaging character out of. McDonald's, is that possible? I mean, it's a long shot. And they keep saying Mickey D, and I just keep laughing. Here comes the big quarter pounder with cheese. Well, and especially because this episode is called The Royale, right? And everyone has seen Pulp Fiction, I'm sure, and that famous exchange between John Travolta and Samuel L. Jackson about the fact that Vince Vega is living in Amsterdam. Right. And he's like, you know, they don't have a quarter pounder in Amsterdam because of the metric system. They call it a Royale with cheese, right? And and I'm thinking, here's the Royale, and oh look, it's Mickey D who runs oh the God. place. Wait, but this is not this is pre Pulp Fiction. I know, but they, at the same time, it was still called the Royale. It's not like they just got the metric system. Uh, oh, I see, I see. Our listener in Groningen gets my point here. There's some McDonald's theme going here, and I I wish they just would have pushed it further like when when mickey d came through the door if he had been wearing like a, a bright yellow jumpsuit that would have been the best <laughs> he just looks like uh, ronald mcdonald yeah yeah and then when the, the the bellboy dies you know the assistant manager says something like oh he had the most ugly grimace <laughs> no and it, it, you could have had that uh what, what was her name that that where's the beef lady she could have turned oh claire claire Apeller. you could have had claire her Apeller. as a background character playing the slots like some of these old ladies they have back there and she could have looked at the camera would have been so funny where's the beef <laughs> I'm sorry, we're very, very old <laughs> listeners, and that that was a big thing back in the day. This 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 uh, matron walking around screaming, "Where's the beef?" all the time because Wendy's had beefier hamburgers than Mickey D's. It was a big deal for a while. I think it was it was one of those commercials that was so popular that it was around. It it, it it did its life, and then it came back again a couple of years later because they were like, "We've got to figure out a way of getting more of that." Where's the beef dollars? Let's talk about literature, baby. Let's talk about lit, baby. Let's talk about you and you me. You and me. Let's read up some lit. Lit, lit, lit. I know you love this stuff with the fiction within the fiction. This episode decides that we're going to take on the 
bad fiction of the writing and then the construct that was built off of it by some mysterious, I don't know if you want to call them one of our entities or not, but we, we never see them. No. They build this thing off of a bad novel and then the characters in our fiction, the show, are commenting about the badness of the writing. The and in what I think is a badly written episode. I so know. It, it's it's meta fiction in that way. And I also thought it was kind of meta because it's a cheap crime novel, right? And cheap crime novels are one of those things that that were ridiculed for decades and never really given the recognition. You know, writers like Jim Thompson, who wrote amazing books, you know, was never given the kind of recognition he deserved in his lifetime. Okay. Now, detective fiction's a little more uh, recognized, a little more praised. Sure. You have more famous writers. It's not considered as trashy. And at the same time, sci-fi was also one of these trashy genres. Not that it was trashy, just that it was considered trashy. It was coming out in these dime store novels, and it was coming out, you know, in in these kind of silly television shows. You know, it was made fun of a great deal. It's very hard for some people to take it seriously because it wasn't presented very seriously. If you've ever watched, you know, for instance, Lost in Space, which was coming out the same time as the original series, and especially that third season. Yeah. where they're fighting giant vegetables. <laughs> Is that true? Yes, of course it's true. All right. hey, why would I make... Watch out, Riker! There's no respect. Look out for the carrots! <laughs> we talked about that, too. We talked about the fact that they're not going to get any Emmys except for hairstyle Emmys. Right. On, this sh- on this show, right. On Next Generation. Right. And the same thing for crime and crime shows. Nowadays, you would. Sopranos, again, obviously, sure. it was one that turned it around. Right. The Wire more serious crime shows, but, you know, I never saw Kojak winning any Emmys. Both excellent shows and modern shows, but are are fairly modern shows. Starsky and Hutch? Did Starsky and Hutch ever win an Emmy? But look, if you got out your TV guide back then in 1989 and flipped through it, I mean, the stuff that was out on TV is mostly unwatchable. Looking at the... What? No, I disagree. No, looking at the crime shows of the time... They weren't any worse than anything else. And then when you get to something like this show, which is way better than a lot of the stuff that was being pumped out on TV. What's on in 1989? You got some funny sitcoms. You got the Cosby show, right? Our favorite. Yeah, we, we talked about this at the very, very beginning in our Encounter at Farpoint episode that, you know, the sci-fi that was on was not great. You know, the tail end of Knight Rider and uh, Beauty and the Beast. But comp shows were starting to pick up. Your your beloved uh, Stephen Bochco was producing yeah, around then. Yeah, and I put that into the handful of shows. It was bef- it came out before this show started. And I thought NBC, uh, what they used to call must-see TV night, was excellent. You had some really great shows. That, how did it go? Must-see TV. But you also had TV shows from Stephen Bochco like Cop Rock. You were probably really into Cop Rock. But let me just give Cop Rock some cred, okay? Because all of these shows, oh my god, including your beloved Buffy the Vampire Slayer, ha- have been inspired by these musical TV shows. We have the all-musical episode of Buffy, which, believe it or not, it sounds so stupid, but anybody that hasn't seen Buffy, that's one of the best episodes of the whole series. And, and you've got a bunch of other shows that have modeled that same thing. And I, oh, I'd like to say thank you to Cop Rock for that. Okay. You... you- cling to that thank you cop rock but yeah i mean 8990 cop rock which of course is a television cop show where they sing it's a musical cop show 
I'm so depressed about crime. I worry about it all the time. My neighborhood is full of the crack. <laughs> I've got to find a way back. Well, you, you got nothing, don't you? <laughs> I know. It's trying so hard. My street is filled with the rough and tough. I get my badge and I put him <laughs> in some cuffs. Lock him up. Cop rock. Cop rock. Like in 89, you start, I mean, you're getting close to things like Twin Peaks. You're getting close. I mean, the Simpsons are getting started. And our X-Files are beautiful X-Files. Come on. Let's not forget American Gladiators. Oh, my God. And yes, I did just look all this up on the internet right now. Oh, no, don't tell them that. Come on. Let's sound, sound form data. America's Funniest Home Videos. Oh, my God. And Cops also both started in 89. Sir Bob Saget. Yeah. I'm telling you, there was a lot of junk on TV. And I know we talked last episode or the one before about how we watched maybe Fantasy Island. It played. It played. And you used to watch The Love Boat religiously? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I did. I loved The Love Boat. I think it was somehow on after Donnie and Marie in the 70s, uh, late 70s. And they the just kept it going. The Love Boat. Tell me if this sounds like something that a kid from the suburbs would do on a Friday night. It was Donnie and Marie, Love Boat. Uh-huh. And then if you got to stay up late enough, uh-huh. Fantasy Island. Wow. That was Friday, man. That was popping. Little bit country. And I'm a little bit rock and roll. That was Donnie and Marie. Those two, before they were on their weight loss commercials and their tandem bike exercise program for Peloton, their sitcom. Before she was pumping the Nutrisystem, yeah. (laughs) These fools were on this show. Well, they had their whole family on it, but then the- It was like a variety show. It was like, you know, variety shows- which I sort of miss when I was a kid. I was growing up, variety shows were big, you know, Sonny and Cher. I know, and, so and they've tried to reinvent them, but but they were like, think of the Jackson 5 and then take everything cool about them out, and, and then you had the the Donnie Marie family. And But listen, when I was when I was six and seven, I loved I, I loved Fonzie and I loved Donnie Marie. That, that was it. That was my whole world on TV. So Donnie and Marie, every episode did this thing where they did a medley of songs, and the start of it was... This song, I'm a little bit country, I'm a little bit rock and roll. And Marie was a little bit country, and Donnie was a little bit rock and roll. Because Donnie had some <laughs> some rock and roll hits, and Marie had some country hits. Specifically, a song called, I think it was called Paper Roses. Anyway, I remember when I was a kid, I freaked out because one night, they switched. Oh, no. And Marie was the rock and roll, and Donnie was the country. Look out, people. Holy shit! All bets were off. Holy shit, Data. Press pause. She's a little bit rock and roll. <laughs> so anyway, can we get back to fucking Star Trek? I, I got some notes, um, it, you know, from the office. And they said, you know, talk about more obscure, crappy 70s television. People love that even more than Star Trek. We're going to start slowly transitioning this into a Donnie and Marie podcast. Just get ready. <laughs> oh, by the way, I don't know about you, but talking about Donnie and Marie... Oh, that makes me thirsty. I'm a little bit refreshed, number one. This is one thing that, that kind of hits me about this episode that I thought was an interesting observation. All right, bring that noise. You actually get one of the few times where the configuration of the show is kind of what Roddenberry had in mind. All right. In the sense that Picard is up on the Enterprise doing the Happy Picard thing. Meanwhile, Riker is taking an away team down to do the action stuff. And he takes Data and Worf. And this is the other thing that that vexes me about this episode. You have three of the most 
right. how can I say, potentially physically dynamic characters. Worf the warrior, you know, Riker. Right. We've seen Riker beating up Klingons. We know that Data has all these powers because he's a, a an android. And then you have them call room service. <laughs> this also indicates how like ineffective this formula is. Picard is really rendered worthless in this episode because he just kind of frets. He reads a book. Yeah, it's weird that they got back to this. And I know this this is one of those episodes that got heavily rewritten. And there were some other uh, darker things that happened in this episode. So it, it makes me wonder if there was a tug of war going on behind the scenes when they made this. The, I think the original idea was that they would encounter some kind of strife on the planet below. And what happens is these fighters stand around and fight nothing and do nothing physical, really. They, they have some funny exchanges right. with the characters in the fiction, but they don't really do anything physical i think the thing that's the most physical outside of Worf pushing the elevator button is Worf tries to shoot he tries to phaser the wall to see if he could break through it at one point well and he doesn't push the elevator button right that's the point that he's so dumb he doesn't know how to work an elevator right but listen i know you get excited when we talk about opening things in this show he doesn't do what they do in some of the bloopers from the original series. If you've ever watched those online, we'll probably put a link in. <laughs> There's these great bloopers where the original cast, they have to walk through these doors and the doors are supposed to automatically open for them, but they're really being pushed by two guys, right? Probably on some kind of pulley, right? So that they open at the same time. But uh, real people are pushing the doors closed or pulling them open, right? If you're really on a spaceship and you expect the doors open, you just have to walk with authority towards the door, right? And there's great shots of people like Scotty running right into the door because you got to walk at like full pace. Yeah. <laughs> it's hysterical. Yes. It would have been funny yeah. if Worf did that right into this door because yeah. um, he expects the elevator to <laughs> open up for him. <laughs> that, see, that would have at least been funny. But yeah, there, right. there are a couple of Teamsters pulling some rope. You know, back on the back on the original series, and and you could just tell <laughs> yeah. who they were pissed off that day. You know, it's like, ah, Jimmy doing ate my lunch. <laughs> there you go. That was my tuna fish, and so we're not going to pull the door for him. But yeah, I that would have been funny. But as it is, it's just it goes nowhere. Well, it's an in, it's again making Worf look stupid, and because he can't figure it out. And then the punchline is that Data then pushes the button himself, and ding, it it opens up. And it's probably pulled by two two Teamsters, you know, anyways, because it's right. a set, even in 1989. <laughs> and God bless the Teamsters, by the way. I'm a big pro-union guy. Yeah. Oh, no. I'm not. Uh, listen, I'm not saying anything bad about Teamsters for crying out loud. I, I'm just saying it's probably the two two same dudes that were doing it on the original series. Yeah, yeah. They're still there. They're still working there. <laughs> yeah. But I did want to note this whole door thing, because then, I mean, we've got like, a, it's like a three door, it's like a, a, a trifecta of doors in this episode. Then we get upstairs and they go into this hall that's, uh, again, you know, this 80s set. Worf is the one that opens the bedroom door to this room. Yes. And back in our season ender of season one with our sleepers, yes. our Worf did not know how to use a door handle and we commented about it at that time he's ready to blast the door open right. and data kind of does this uh nah and shows him that this is how an actual handle works he's kerfuffled 
this is some character development is this what you're trying to aim at and this in this long convoluted story is just that there is an ounce of character <laughs> development for Worf because he learns how to turn a goddamn doorknob this is this is <laughs> this dude learns things man he learned the he learned how to open a goddamn damn door from now on he knows how to work a 20th century elevator wow it's pretty exciting Worf is just becoming the central character of the show i mean he'll be chief science officer in no time he could push a button and turn a knob what next Worf does have a couple funny lines in this episode this is where i think some of the comedy versus it being a little bit darker the lines are really muted and they're totally written as jokes. I don't know if you remember this one. They open this door, they go into this room, and they find the mummy, the dead dude, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Howard Hughes type character. And Riker says it looks like he died in his sleep. And Worf says under his breath, Whoa, what a terrible way to go. <laughs> it's a joke because, you know, a Klingon doesn't want to die in their sleep. Right, they want to die right. in battle. So it's right. a really, it's really funny, but it's, it's so muted that you can't. I didn't get it at first. Then there's another gag after they find out that this this guy was trapped there in this fictional place. It was constructed for him. They go downstairs and they have to try to get yes. out. And Riker commands his away team to kind of blend into the room. Worf says, how should I do that? And Data says, casual queries offered innocuously might be fruitful. Worf looks at him. <laughs> he has this look like... Like, do you, do you know who I am? <laughs> like, it's it's supposed to be a joke. Like, who the fuck are you talking to? <laughs> Data's saying, be inconspicuous, dude. And Worf's like, what? <laughs> he kind of, it would have been good if he did, like, Ferris Bueller the camera at that point. Like, <laughs> yeah. But I got to tell you, I, I think the opportunity to see Worf in Vegas is hilarious. And, and, and I understand why you want to have Texas and Vanessa, who we got to talk about, dealing with Data. But Texas and uh, Vanessa dealing with Worf would have been even funnier. You could have given Worf that hat, which would have been, wouldn't have fit his giant dome. And right. then he could have been like, you know, hey, <laughs> I'm hustling this chick. And, and Worf could have like killed him. You are without honor. He would, have, he would have picked up the roulette wheel and smashed it over that Texas's head. Those scenes would have been way f more fun if it was Data and Worf playing with this couple. Right. And it's good because what happens twice, there's two scenes where you have Data, you know, connects with this Texan guy and this woman who he's trying to hit on who is played. And I know, again, it's, it's in defense of what they're trying to do. It's because the writing of the novel is so bad, but she's uh, completely you know, witless character who says a bunch of goofy stuff and they would never write a female character like this, even as like somebody that was supposed to be in this kind of world. But, and she says a couple things that are supposed to be last, but they're also inappropriate. Like she's trying to learn blackjack, blackjack yeah. like, like data is. And she says, Oh, Oh my gosh, I, I'm losing right, my right. shirt. And data looks at her. And she's got this, like, she's she has two outfits. So the second outfit changed. She's wearing this really sequin thing, but it's kind of revealing. And Data looks at her. And so it, clearly it isn't a shirt. And Data has this look where he looks at her like, like, it's either interpreted as, I see that you're not wearing a shirt, so what a funny thing to say. Or I wouldn't mind seeing that. <laughs> I wouldn't mind seeing you lose your shirt. And because we know that Data... What, what what do you say? I'm uh, I'm proficient with all my manual 
and unmanual dockings. Fully functional and programmed in multiple techniques. Fully functional uh, number data. Yeah, the, the, the moment where she's like, I'm losing my shirt and Texas is like, you know, can't you see I'm trying to help this little lady? I have nothing to say there. I just found the line. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> Make that point again, please, Andrew. Well, I want to talk about Texas because this is the creepiest part of the show. And talk about politics changing and and the perception of these kind of things changing. But, right. you know, there's something seriously wrong with that. Texas is trying to make Vanessa go broke. And, and I believe Picard says it's a subplot of the novel that Texas is trying to take advantage of Vanessa for, you know, awful reasons. And he's that, trying to get her to lose all her money yeah. by giving her bad advice. Is that what they're saying, do you think? Oh, that's absolutely what's going on. Yes. So they, they find this novel in the mummy's room. And what is kind of cool is that Data then does his like hyper fast scan of the novel yes. and uploads the book into his own brain, but also it goes up to the Enterprise at the same time. So Picard can read ahead and he learns things about the book and then in turn helps them down below with some suggestions. And I right. and I kind of like that idea, but it does still play into your whole, uh, the captain is giving them instructions from some kind of a manual and not actually doing anything active. You know, but who cares? Because w- what they're doing down below is inactive anyway. But that scene with Texas, I'm sorry, but that scene with Texas and Vanessa. Yeah, go ahead. It, it's just like the threat of menace towards Vanessa, who is a, a, a ditzy character. And, and she's played in a very, uh, you know, this is how they're telling the the actor to play this character as kind of an airhead, very naive, very innocent. And then you have this lecherous uh, cowboy character, this Texas, played by uh, an actor by the name of Noble Noble Willingham, of all names. Believe it or not. And, and yeah, I mean, he was on uh, a Walker, Texas Ranger. I mean, that's the only thing I can right. really think of with this yeah. guy. It's creepy and it's not funny. And it has no. a real sense of of menace and of assault, right? And of Vanessa being taken advantage of in in I would say a sexual manner. We're supposed to believe this exists in the world of the book, of course. So you can apologize for all that because of that conceit. But it's playing out on our 1989 show, which is also pointing out that this fiction is so bad. But it's like, um, could you guys write something a little bit better to be the false fiction on the show? I mean, what if these guys? popped into a really great fiction and they had to figure out a way out of that like what if why not that why does it have to be so bad or what if texas was just a straight up con artist and and was trying to bilk someone out of money as opposed to bilk them out of you know physical favors right i i, I don't know because again the the roles that women had on television at this point and just the value of women in general at least at the show, I'm not going to say everybody in 1989 felt like this, but at least what was being portrayed on television shows like this, that you still kind of joked about this or you used it as a plot device or just use such obvious kind of tricks. Uh, it, it's just so dated and it doesn't hold up anymore. And, and we just wouldn't put up with it if we saw it on modern TV. It just makes it look so old. I want to, I'd like to talk about what the hell is going on with our counselor up top. She is sitting there in her seat. Yes, Abzadi. And listen, listen, that's a pretty good Troy. Thank you, Abzadi. One, hold on a second, boys. Just give give me a second. I'm running, I'm going out to the trailer again. Uh, uh, Great bird, great bird. 
I know I said I wouldn't bother you anymore this episode, but I had one more thing, one more thing, and that's it, I swear. For Christ's sake, I'm trying to watch Family Feud. That Richard Dawson, I just can't get enough of him. Caw, caw. It looks like you're also painting Miguel's toenails. Good work, great bird. You, you, you've got this character. He's called Texas. Yes. He's actually the epitome of everything that is a stereotype about Texas. Yes. He's, he's a, a, a derogatory towards women. He's greedy. He drives a big um, uh, ozone-busting car. Yes. Do you think that's good for our uh, Star Trek demographic in Texas? Come on. Nobody watches this shit in Texas. Caw, caw. Thank you, Great Bird. Ah, you're welcome. Now leave me the fuck alone. You still have my left pinky. You have my tiny little piggy to go. Let's talk about Counselor Troy. Dave, I'm feeling great anticipation to talk about <laughs> Counselor Troy. Thank you. And I keep saying this about Troy, and you keep telling me I'm wrong about this, but here she is with these supernatural powers, okay? And she really She's does empathic. use a... Uh, no, but it's like sometimes she can read shit and sometimes she can't. Sometimes she can see things way far away and sometimes she can't. And and this is okay. my question for you. Is the fact that she can feel Jonathan Frake's feelings, okay? Riker's, Riker's feelings, feelings down below. Yes. She knows what he's feeling. So at first yes. she says, she says, what do you say? She says, Cap- Captain, he's, he's feeling. Um, the captain, very- he's not feeling threatened. He's feeling amused. Right, and so I he goes, feel good, great good, amusement. Good to know, good to know. Captain, he's he's really bearing down. I, I, I think you should suggest more fiber. Captain, no Captain, I think that gawk is kicking back on him. I think he had too much pipius claw, Captain. Commander Riker, there's no bathrooms anywhere in this place. <laughs> Can you imagine? You know how we talk about bathrooms so much in the show. There are no bathrooms on the Enterprise, but there are also no bathrooms in this hotel. And I mean, think about it. I mean, these guys are there for a long time. They don't eat or <laughs> in the bathroom. At least Riker should have to take a leak. I mean, I, I, Data, okay, fine. Worf, he's a warrior. He could probably hold it for a long time. But Riker should at least have to have had taken a leak. It would have been great if the three of them go in and they built this set with stalls and they get to the three stalls and Worf doesn't know how to open the stall door. <laughs> he doesn't understand how to put push a door that swings in. That would have been so great. It was like the all 20th century episode featuring doors. And, and then they get that that fourth member that should have been down there. You know, they should have had goddamn Wayland in this episode. You know what I'm oh, talking about? Oh, God, I knew that was coming. But it'd been great if, if well, why not? If, if Worf also doesn't know how to wipe, <laughs> so it's, Riker's got to go in there and do it for him. Show him. Now you get a couple of get a couple of squares here, and you, uh, t- Commander, my yeah, fingers they- gone right through the paper. <laughs> You got a shot of Data like peering over the top of the stall to look in. I believe, Commander, it's appropriate to go front to back. (laughs) A warrior goes back to front. Uh, 
again, this is where our, you know, we talk about this Wayland, this 20th century expert. And, and I know, I mean, people don't know this, but Andrew and I, you know, behind the scenes are, you know, always pitching nearly marketable books to uh, Star Trek publishers trying to get things made. And, and, and one of our books is, is this book about Wayland, the 20th century expert and his adventures on the, uh, the Enterprise. Yeah, hanging out with the other century experts. Right. He would have been perfect there. With perfect. But I want to circle back to Troy, though, because I think this is, again, like I said, this was the vision of the show. There's interference right. that prevents the Enterprise from really getting a lock on these guys. And she's sort of serving as the censors in this case, right? She's letting you know they're not in dire straits. It's another give Troy something to do in this episode because she's not doing anything. She does it. What's funny is that she does it until they start breaking into communication, which is a really weird move because, you know, at some point, Jordy is trying to crack into into the communicator, which has been shielded. They, they can't talk directly to the way team. And so Troy at first is the one that's giving Picard this information about his emotional state, Riker's emotional state. That becomes useless at some point because they actually have to start conveying information up top uh, and down below to each other. They just tell, you know, Deanna to forget about it and they start being able to communicate. And it's another, it was another opportunity where you could have something kind of creepy going on because you have this communication barely making it through. But this is the, the failure of this arrangement, right? Because what happens to the rest of the crew is, is so Deanna gets, a, you know, she gets to feel. And then Jordy and Wes, and and this is just silliness. Jordy and Wes get to like push buttons and stare at screens intently. And there's this one line that that made me laugh out loud when Picard. I mean, they're trying to make this exciting, right? They're trying to make this interesting. And Picard says, "You know, those are some fairly aggressive computations, Lieutenant. Aggressive compute. Oh, what in God's name? <laughs> I just I I laughed out loud. It's like, wow, Jordy, look at you push those buttons so aggressively. It's so boring to see that, and the way that you juxtapose it image wise to make it really work, like in action movies, is that you have one person's on that computer typing like like nobody types on a computer, like like uh, as hard as you could type, and then and then it's cut against somebody doing something active like running or climbing or trying to get away from somebody and they're communicating back and forth and that's how you build the tension in those scenes but then here you got people pushing buttons up on top and people down below doing almost almost the same thing they're milling about in a in a 1980s casino and so there's there's no action going on below and every opportunity for actual action is thwarted or muted in some way it just it's I don't, confusing I don't know, I don't know though, Dave. Those those computations are pretty aggressive. I don't know if that was a Picard complimenting his crew member. We've noted this recently that he, you know, he he's he's a, he's not no, a big. This hugger. is his love language. I think he's just bored. He's got nothing to do. He's just walking around watching other people. You know, Picard at this point is almost like the audience. He's just walking around waiting for something and and watching <laughs> well, guys push buttons on glass. And it's it's not even like the original series where you have actual tactile buttons that make some noise. And this is one of the, in the new Discovery series. I don't know if any of our listeners are watching that. There's a lot of, of issues course. with Discovery, but one of them is that they don't have like real buttons anymore on the ship, right? I mean, spoiler alert for the third series, they they redo some of the controls, so they no longer oh. have buttons to push. And I'm like, come on, this is 
at least give these poor people whose job it is to just sort of sit there and look worried some physical to do. Well, the thing on this show is that the buttons that you're mentioning are actually embedded in glass or plastic, so they're light displays. So there's no actual, you know, nothing's being pushed in. So that's not right. even really a button. Oh, we didn't talk about this theorem. It's pretty fucking boring. Picard says, I, I find this stimulating. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because a couple episodes ago, we had he and Riker giving exposition while they were on a phaser yes. range, okay? So they're talking, they're giving some boring dialogue while they're shooting at things. And in this episode, he's sitting there in his office, not looking at a floating three-dimensional holographic planet's ring orbit, but he's thinking of a theorem, this famous French theorem. And it's like, Oh my God, Chris Snooze, guys. Great bird. This couldn't Chris, be any more boring. Chris Snooze. I, I, I do have to tell you, uh, 90% of the ship's functions are automatic. In, in Contagion, we found that out. Was that last episode? I think you're right. And now you understand why. Yeah, but you also begin to, to question exactly why there's all these people on this damn ship. Because 90% of it is automatic, which gives the captain, the captain of the, the Galaxy class flagship, of the Federation, time to just kind of sit around and think about math. <laughs> oh, hum. Before I was looking at orbits, now I'm looking at theorem. Later on, <laughs> I shall look at wheat growing. Data, data, access the unsolved theorem file and throw another one at this old bald head. Number one, have you ever spent time looking at the different nap of different styles of carpeting? It's fascinating. It's the unsolved shag carpet. Nobody can figure out how it got that kind of a weave, number one. Think about it. Right after I'm done with that French theorem, I move on to figuring out shag. Look, look, they have this endless source of entertainment, the holodeck. Right. Even the show is putting the fiction and the, and the adventure in the holodeck. So the only excuse of not being in the holodeck is that holodecks one, two, three, and four are busy. And that there's too many people in there. That's the only reason why you wouldn't be in a holodeck all the time on this ship. Diana, Diana, I recently in my studies discovered something called brunch. I was wondering, do you know about brunch? Would you like to take <laughs> eggs Benedict with me? There are many kinds of Benedicts. Let's go through them together, Diana. Listen, Diana, listen, listen. I know it's a bit off topic at this point in the narrative, but I was back to thinking about Fermat's theorem, and I'm wondering if you could run a few things by Commander Riker while he's down there. <laughs> I, I had some I, I had some notions. I think I might have cracked it. So the one thing that is interesting is every character is in there and every character gets to say something with the exception of Guinan, who is a secondary character anyway. You know, Troy, Jordy, Wes, O'Brien right. gets to play with his transporters. And then even Pulaski has a brief scene where she isn't even annoying, right? I mean, she just sits there and says, well, if that happens, you die. Tough luck. Be helpful, doctor. I, I got to ask you something, too, about O'Brien and the transporter room. And I, I don't know why. I, I, I guess I was really bored because I never noticed. Why is there acoustic paneling in the transporter room? I don't know. I always think that has something to do 
with the transporter going wrong and like blasting the shit out of somebody and their guts flying all over the place. I thought those were like kind of gut absorbing catch-alls or something. Oh, wow. Okay. That makes sense. The transport room always has reminded me of when you go and get an x-ray and that that dude has to stand behind the, you know, the x-ray. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got to stand behind that shield and is like, yeah, I'm just going to point this right at your crotch. Uh, (laughs) Don't worry. It's fine. Last time I got an x-ray, I said, um, uh, where's the where's the lead suit? Where is it? And he goes, oh, he goes, you know what? We don't do that anymore. There's a study that says basically you're just as safe without it. And then he goes and stands behind that wall yeah, still. He goes into a bunker and seals himself in. And like, right. yeah. Mr. Commander Davey Dave, please don't move because it's a long walk for me to go back there and reposition you. You will no longer be able to have children. <laughs> One testicle still works, Dave. It's all good. We've we've deleted your dilithium crystal. Yeah, but that's what the transporter room always reminds me of that. <laughs> O'Brien, get into the patent buffer and find Dave's testicles. <laughs> when we bring you up next time, you'll have one less nut. When you beam him up, rinse his testicles. <laughs> I got it back, fellas. <laughs> but maybe O'Brien's a great Irish tenor and he likes to record in there. You don't know. Oh, Danny boy, the light. I'm sorry. (laughs) Miles O'Brien sold more records than Elvis and the Beatles in Australia. Sing songs the young people like. I'm working on my album in the transporter room when nobody's in here. I I get less screen time than Whoopi and and Mulder combined. It'd be great if he did like a Shatner-esque record where he does uh, feelings. Lucy (laughs) in the sky. With diamonds? One of the things that Picard says to Troy before she starts feeling Riker vibes is he wonders, is there an intelligence behind all this? He doesn't ask Troy, but he asks Geordi, right? He goes, is there an intelligence behind this? And Jordy looks at him like, how the fuck would I know? And what's funny is, <laughs> like, like, what a question for a captain to ask after all these episodes with all these entities. Is there an intelligence behind this? And then it's like, <laughs> ask the Betazoid. She's literally right behind you. That's what you ask the Betazoid. And then, of course, she would say something like, I- I- I'm sorry, I-, I don't have that information. Or, I'm sorry, I can't tell. You know, but it's funny that he asks yeah. Jordy, which well, why on earth should Jordy know that? You have him look out the window like he did in the early episodes. Remember, that was their big uh, their big sensor thing was having him look out the window. Hey, Jordy, look at that window. Tell me what you see. <laughs> Commander LaForge, we have this spaceship with like 300 decks or something and all this future technology. But we would like you to look out the window and stare at shit and wonder if you'll ever get to be the host of Jeopardy! <laughs> Spoiler, you won't. I also want to mention Brent Spiner here because, as always, you know, he is the bright spot in this whole episode. It's not really a lot of character work in here. And when yes. he gets to the craps table and, and sort of turns on gambling data, like accesses his gambling data program, and he's snapping his fingers, doing his, his rap yeah, pack, funny. you know, best to be hip and playing big money. I just enjoyed the hell out of that. That 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 pleased me to no end. He really has this character down right. There's so much that he does with so little, and, and you see it playing out here. I, I would like to give a little shout to our Dorn in this episode, too, because I actually think that because of the writing and how they handle his character, which we keep noting is yeah. a problem, he really does do some stuff in this, and I just wish they would give him some more 
scene time and screen time. And I don't want them to make him a goof, but there could be some funny scenes with him being this fish out of water like Data is. But instead, it's like, you know, we're only going to give those scenes to Data because he's the best at them. And it's, it's a shame because I think you could add some funny character building moments with Worf in these scenes. The idea of Worf in Vegas yeah. is hilarious. Taking Worf and putting him in the middle of Vegas where they probably wouldn't even notice him if they actually, instead of going to this fake Vegas, had gone to the real Vegas and just let Worf loose. You know, if you've never been to Vegas, good. Stay away from it. It's awful. At the same time, you know, it's filled with with some real gaudy, crazy looking characters. You could be Worf right down there and have him walk around and no one would think anything. Sure. As a matter of fact, they just had a big uh, Star Trek convention in Las Vegas. So even more so, it'd been great to to beam him down right in the middle of the Star Trek convention. All, all Klingons allowed. Uh, uh, totally. Or, or you know, he, he definitely fits in better in Vegas than he does in Victorian London. That's for sure. <laughs> Yeah, he looks so dapper. He looks so dapper in his little suit. Do you think we can close the book on this episode? Yeah, I'm I'm going to have to say, I, I think you probably ended up more on my side than I ended up on your side. I still think it's not a very good episode. I know people like it. I'm not mm. one of those people. It's not that I thought it was such a great episode because it wasn't. It's just that I love the idea of them going down to a planet. I don't love what they did with it. I did some reading and I found that the original script contained another crew member of what is called in the Star Trek world, a red shirt. Oh, that would have been great. And she ends up getting killed. Okay. Somehow assumes the role of our dead astronaut. Oh, and the fiction is kept alive for her sake. So she's left in the hotel, which made me feel like the original script to the episode was meant to be dark and wasn't meant to be this this kind of comedic episode. It never finds its tone. But listen, um, we've got another episode coming up at us. It's episode 13. Oh, my God. What the heck is that called? A little something called Times Squared. Times Squared. Yeah, you have Picard on Picard action. You have two Picards. Oh, my God. Are you kidding? Would I kid you about that? Oh, my God. I'm going to have to really... Uh, oh, man. I'm going to have to really stretch my vocal cords for that I one. I would suggest lozenges, some kind of vocal spray. All right. I'll, I'll work on that. Rest your instrument the day before. I will. I will. I, I train it. To, believe it or not, I, I actually spend some time in putting some Picard together, trying to get, trying to hit those notes trying to really punch the Picard. Well, this has just been a delightful, a delightful adventure. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on STTNG's Not Another Star Trek Podcast. I am Commander Dave E. Dave. And I'm Ambassador Andrew. Let's go mind the store. On the next episode of STTNG's Not Another Star Trek Podcast. It's Season 2, Episode 13, and it's Time Squared. Hold on a second, I've got a real treat for you, number one. Oh, that's right, time. But, you know, with math and shit, space is huge. Oh, yeah, it's the biggest thing. There's all kinds of mind-bending time travel talk. It's science fiction already. Marty, Marty, get your time machine. We're going back to the future. You'll meet not one, but two Jean-Luc Picards. The, the guy that looks like Patrick Stewart's just laying on a table. Hello, understudy. Wake up. It's just scene. 
and two Kirks. You end up with sort of a mousy, wimpy, but good-natured Kirk, and then you end up with the darker, impulsive action Kirk. But there's only one wharf. The rest of them are like, this tastes like shit. And he's like woofing them down. <laughs> Delicious. It's episode 13 of season two. STTNG's Not Another Star Trek podcast. Listen, great bird. I can play against my greatest adversary, myself. I believe, Commander, it's appropriate to go front to back.